How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Black and Gay Back in the Day. We're bringing to life the archive of images of Black LGBTQ plus life in Britain, from the 1970s to the early noughties. Brown skin beauty Fair fine future I'm Mark Thompson. I'm an activist and health promotion specialist and I built this archive with the journalist and writer Jason Okendaya. Deep dark wisdom In this episode, we are looking at a photograph that brings joy and warmth because of the power of support. A coloured photo shows two black men in the forefront of the image as a party continues behind them. The man on the left looks directly at the camera and wears a green check shirt over a white t-shirt and the hat that reads, Festina Watches. He is embracing the man on the right who has his face and eyes angled down. He's wearing a blue cap to match his blue shirt over a black t-shirt. Both men are smiling ear to ear at the Big Up Christmas party in 1996. The people in the background are also smiling and having what looks like a good time. The walls of the room are decorated with fairy lights and tinsel. There is one poster that is slightly obscured. It reads, why is safer sex like a and the final word is cut off one thing is clear in this image it's the joy that comes from being surrounded by people who support you now we have heard through the stories in this podcast that our black queer communities we have had to support ourselves and each other during the 70s the 80s and the 1990s to understand more about that time and what support looks like today, I asked trans activist and LGBTQ plus organizer, Rico Jacob Chase to uncover more. So I'm looking at this photo on Black and Gay back in the day. It's Colin and Neville at the Big Up Christmas party in Brixton, uh, 1996. There is such a warmth and natural embrace between the two of them. You can see they have a really, really strong relationship and both of them are beaming. There are so many black people in the room. There's Christmas decorations. Uh, everyone's having a good time. Everyone's smiling. 
And you can see that there's groups of people in deep conversations with each other. You can see there's like a real community there, a real relationship. So let's do some exploring, like who are big up. My name is Rico Jacob Chase. I'm a trustee at Elstree Consortium and I'm director at Transaction UK CIC. So I'm a diversity consultant and activist. I mean, I'm currently Googling right now and I still can't seem to find them, um, which is unfortunate, really. The larger LGBT charities keep coming up. Um, so let's do some digging. Okay, cool. We found something from the Welcome Collection, so let's have a look. So, uh, Big Up is a black man who has sex with men, delivering HIV and AIDS information to black men who have sex with men. Big Up. I love the um, LGBT inclusion there. And it is an archive. So, yeah. so I'm look at, looking at some old leaflets here. Uh, looks like an information leaflet. From the 90, 1995 to 2000s. And this one is about, um, yeah, it's safe sex with AIDS and uh, specific information about HIV. From what I knew about the AIDS pandemic, I didn't realise that the community is sort of pulled together and created their own information resources. So that's incredibly impressive and incredibly empowering. Um, you can tell it was back in the 1995 or early 2000s because um, of some of the, the graphics. So it's like old school graphic design. But I know it looks like a really, really uh, warm environment, and for the community to pull together and create the resources, I do see some some similarities between Big Up and Transactual, because Transactual UK we've created our own GP resources because um, the government just wasn't doing it and it needed to get done, so we did it. Um, so I mean, I'm online right now, just exploring other. Uh, like queer organisations because safe spaces are really, really important so it's important to find the community, find individuals that are similar to us and kind of hear their stories. I've come across this organisation called House of Rainbow so um, I'm going to drop a message to Jide who runs it to sort of hear some of their stories and see if he, he knew um, of Big Up and he knew what they were doing and the, some of the amazing people behind the organisation. Not only is Jide founder of House of Rainbow, they are also very, very open about being HIV positive and irreverent, and they've been quite open about their identity during the time that this photo at Big Up was taken. So fingers crossed today, knew about Big Up and know some of the amazing people behind that organisation and can tell me some really um, in-depth stories about some of the people behind this photo, because I really want to get to know them better. Jude, lovely to meet you. Um, I'm, my name is Rico. I'm based up in London. How are you? Nice to meet you too, Rico. I lived in London until about four and a half months ago before I moved to Manchester. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, but everybody calls me Mama Jude. Ah, Mama Jude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely so. Cool. Is that like an, an affectionate name or... Um, it's actually a, a kind of endearing name uh, because I struggled with toxic masculinity. I don't like people calling me sir or mister or brother uh, or bro. All of those things just make me cringe. You know, I just prefer, you know, that gentle 
uh, compassion mother in me. And well, my congregation calls me Reverend Mother, so it works out. That's brilliant. Yeah, it took me a while to um <clears throat> to stop saying guys and bros. I now say bud because it's very, very gender neutral. No one's really going to be offended if you say bud. But yeah. no, it's just um, interesting how different pronouns can have like different meaning. Sometimes you just don't really want to be addressed a certain way. So yeah, it's, it's cool that your yeah. congregation is respecting that. Thank you. So, I mean, I guess firstly, just tell me a bit about yourself. Like, tell me your story. Like, how did you come to find your community? What was like the, the conflict of being sort of a, 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 your different parts of your intersectionality, different parts of your identity? How did you manage to sort of pull them together to be the person you are today? I mean, when it comes to inter- intersectionality, it's always a minefield. And uh, for me as an individual, putting everything together, it's not necessarily by chance, but it's actually by hard work. As a Black, gay, British, Nigerian, Christian theologian, and Anglican, and someone living with HIV, my goodness me, that is already loaded. So, I mean, growing up, you know, I've always had an understanding that you cannot be gay if you're Black, period, that homosexuality is for white people. And I think that the other thing, again, is that you cannot be gay if you're a Christian. But of course, you know, growing up, you know, it it created a lot of challenges for me. And because I was raised in a very Christian environment, so that meant that I, from an early age, I already internalized the idea that I cannot be loved by God because of my sexuality. So, of course, you know, when I came out as gay, I felt that, you know, God is going to punish me anyway. So uh, later on in in life, when I then was diagnosed with HIV, I actually initially believed that God is punishing me for being gay. But I had to do a lot of work. I had to do a lot of soul searching in order to reconcile all of who I am. And today is part of my work, you know, as 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 a person, as a minister, to be able to say to black queer folks living with HIV that God loves you just the way you are. And, you know, I mean, I have used the acronym G-A-Y and I've turned it around and I say to queer people, G-A-Y means God adores you, God accepts you, regardless of the situation we find ourselves. That's beautiful. I wouldn't say say that I'm uh, religious. I think it would be nice to have faith, like the idea that it's just me in the world by myself and I'm responsible for all of my actions and there isn't anything after death's door. It's it's just very, very difficult to uh, accept and it's probably the main source of a lot of my depression and anxiety. But I have found a lot of uh, community and spirit in the LGBT community. Um, And interestingly, a lot of the solitude and and comfort that I found um, from uh, in society is using techniques that are very, very um, heavily used in religious practices. So, for example, like gratitude or community spirit, like selflessness, uh, a lot of these elements are are seen across different religions different religions so um i do have a lot of respect for people who are in religious groups and it's beautiful that you've kind of created a space where queer people can reconcile the various parts of their identity um because me growing up i didn't necessarily think it was possible to be 
um, queer and, and black at the same time. So finding those spaces and finding people such as yourself who are really, really holding those platforms and, and doing it so with so much, so much courage and positivity is like really, really important. So I guess thank you for that. Thank you. So now we have this photo. Uh, it's part of the Instagram archive of black and gay. Uh, back in the day this was an image that big up christmas party and yeah can you tell me more about big up big up back in the 80s was um, a space that was created within uh, an organization called gmfa and at the time gmfa uh, stands for gay men fighting aids and big up was that group within this organization that brought black gay men together or black men who have sex with men together and it was that safe space that also includes friendship, socialization. Um, I was part of that community even long before my own HIV diagnosis. You know, I was part of that community. Um, we share a lot of stories. We share information about sexual health and, you know, how to protect yourself from HIV. And this is also the time where advocacy around condom using using condom properly during sexual intercourse, you know, was a big part uh, of our conversations of the time. Uh, and of course, it was a time that I made so many friends and uh, uh, I met people like Mark Thompson, uh, who has not just become uh, a friend, but a, 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 a sibling to me. Um, it was within those spaces that I found safety, that I found compassion, that I found a lot of things, especially when uh, I'm going through terrible times. This is a community that I most often turn to uh, for support. So, I mean, that was the first fully funded group in the UK to work to prevent HIV in black, gay, bisexual communities and support those that live with HIV. Do you think that we still have those community spaces today? To be quite honest, I mean, I think those spaces are very rare and that is heartbreaking. But I think that the reality is that the small groups are still very, very powerful um, you know, there are still individuals that are creating spaces, even though not on a large scale. Um, there are groups like Black Inc., uh, Blackout UK, um, you know, uh, House of Rainbow, that are still organizing spaces uh, for Black queer people. There is also another organization called UK Gays of Color. There is Living Free UK. So again, there are spaces, but they are not, they're not big spaces. Out of curiosity, how did you fight, fund that organization back in the day? I mean, you said it was fully funded. Do you know how, was it like government supported or councils? Or was it the community? Uh, I was a trustee at some point as well. The funding probably came from both government and uh, philanthropists as well. So uh, it, it would have been funded through a lot of the sexual health funding. But I think that the idea to be able to get successful funding will have been that organizations like GMFA will have had to say, we do have specific projects that target the black gay community. And that often uh, is, is an area of ring fences and successful funding for organizations. But the fact that Bigot was not an independent organization you know, managing its own funding, for me, that was um, a setback uh, for the Black queer community. 
2022, we're still having this conversation. Um, you know, racism have a huge part to play in how funding is distributed. So we, we have a white organization managing a black project. There's everything wrong about it. You're, you're right. We always tend to be almost like an afterthought when it comes to funding. Um, so I'm a trustee and treasurer at Elderly Consortium, and we are the eighth largest funder of Elderly projects in, in the world. Being part of that is incredibly eye-opening. And luckily, we do have the equity fund, which also has a race relations element. So we, we do specifically fund LGBT projects that do support um, not just the LGBT community, but also recognise intersectionality. But that in itself was an uphill struggle. You have to prove the need to funders. You have to prove that you need the funders that um, the intersectionality element even exists, because sometimes they aren't even aware. Uh, and I can imagine back in the 80s it would have been an absolute nightmare. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you're going to call this one out. I'm actually part of the people that advocated for LGBT consortium to look into funding directly um, the various communities. So um, I, I did work with them last year and this year. And, and I think that the idea is to actually separate all the different groups, like the older people's group, trans group, black um, people, uh, people of color group, and then the generic group as well. Because otherwise, you will not everything. If you put everything together, you will not be able to identify them. And and I think it's important that the thematic areas are clear, so that you know organizations that support the various underrepresented communities will be able to get the application looked into by those communities and then hopefully funded. Talking about the same topic. You mentioned that the black LGBT community are affected by decisions made by people outside of the community. Have you ever felt that the black community has to support ourselves because no one else would? I mean, it, it is difficult for the black community to support the black LGBT community because of the history of homophobia within the black community. To be quite honest, uh, it is difficult because when funding is coming from the government or from the national lottery or from other sources, the question we have to ask ourselves is that who speaks for us at the point of decision-making? Um, we, we've had the phrase, nothing about us without us, thrown around so many times, but too often we are not present when decisions are made. So it is important that, you know, when we have funding, whether it's from uh, the national lottery or from comic relief, or any other institution, it is important that black queer leaders are in that space to help drive, you know, the purposeful funding into the right direction so that we can make decisions that will impact and benefit our community now and into the future. Yes. Say it again. <laughs> Brilliant. So where do you think the history of homophobia in the black community comes from? The history of homophobia in the black community comes from colonialism and it also comes from religion. Let's be very clear. Um, if the uh, colonizers never came to Africa, I'm sure we would just be as, as wise and as independent. But, you know, oppression has a part to play in it. Let's talk about religion itself. The complete mistranslation of the Bible has caused so many people to go against homosexuality. I mean, black people were never originally homophobic. We coexisted with people of different sexualities and orientation. So the, the imposition of conservative religion means that we 
are displaced in our own understanding of how to love everybody and be compassionate about everyone. I mean, if you go back into our history prior to colonialism and the missionaries, there is no, there is no documentation of homophobia at all. But there is, there is, uh, there's enough history where you know uh, queer people are embraced as part of the society. A lot of them, a lot of queer people are actually spiritual beings. Um, if you take South Africa, for example, where we have the Sangomas, you know, uh, religious leaders who are mostly you know same gender loving uh, people or two spirited people, um, boy wives, female husbands. It is a good book that documents the history of um, the same-sex relationship uh, in Africa prior to the imposition of religious missionaries. Uh, That's really powerful. I mean, my ancestors were Jamaican, and I have to keep reminding myself that we were enslaved as opposed to slaves. It almost is, especially in the UK, they tend to sort of write history as if it sort of just began. It sort of began at slavery. Nothing happened before. And you have to try and, and reconcile your identity, reconcile who you are and try to find who your ancestors are. And but part of the um, the way that I, I sort of come to terms with my identity is that even if I encounter a family member that isn't necessarily understanding of who I am, the idea that my ancestors would have loved and embraced me is very, very comforting. So it's really important to kind of know who you are and where you came from. Uh, it took me a while to kind of work out who I was and where I should be, where I want to be, rather. So I found a lot of community in UK Black Pride. You know, I was also working as a bartender at Shebar, which is a lesbian bar. And when I was working there, I, I realized that I was annoying literally every single uh, le- lesbian bartender with my dad jokes. And they're like, you're not the same as us. <laughs> you're, you're a bloke. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I am. And then one of the um, the managers came up to me and said, are you trans? I said, I think so. I was, wasn't really sure. And they're like, oh, what are your pronouns? I said, oh, probably he, him, but don't really worry about it. And they're like, no, no, Rico, your pronouns are your identity. Like, you have to take it seriously. And that conversation happened about probably about four years ago. Um, I, I really, really find that who I am today is 100% um, directly credited to the communities that are around me. And it was their understanding and their empowerment that kind of gave me. So community for me is everything. And I have the privilege right now at, at Transactual to be in rooms like such as Mermaids and uh, Gendered Intelligence, where we will kind of work out how to strategically to respond to the latest round of transphobic nonsense that sort of hit us. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When I looked at that photo, I realized that it was a couple years after I was born. <laughs> I was five then. And to think that back in that time, people had the opportunity to have that level of happiness and that level of community and freedom um, made me realize that even when I was trying to find it about three or four years ago, that it really did exist. And um, I kind of had a, a, a massive sense of empowerment and happiness. When I first went into LGBT bars, I was trying to find five my people. It was all very, very white. And there's nothing wrong with having white spaces, but there are always going to be cultural differences. And sometimes you just want to talk about the music that you always grew up listening to. Sometimes you want to feel at home in a safe space. Thank you so much, so much for sharing your own story. There is no doubt in my mind that for every Black LGBTIQ person, we have incredible stories. But looking back at the pictures, well, like you said on Instagram, um, I know both of them. I'm not sure if I was at that party. I came out as gay in the summer of 1994. I was married to a woman and we had a child together. I mean, our son is 30 years old. And so you can imagine, I mean, he was born in 92. I came out as gay in 94, and there's a, a big old Christmas party. And I'm sure I was at that party. I'm not sure if I can find pictures. Maybe it was the time that I don't allow cameras near me. So. But what was that like, you sort of coming to terms with your identity? And was the anxiety about not wanting to be photographed? Was that about your family finding out? Or not to sort of throw cliches, was it because of your job or work, you know? Uh, did you have to have a certain level of bravery in order to be photographed? So if you did have a photograph and it were public about that, was that a sense of empowerment or recklessness? I mean, yeah, I think it's probably recklessness because when I first came out as gay, I wasn't too super conscious about cameras around me. I, I didn't think that I recall either dodging from cameras. Um, um, for example, you know, I mean, if you're in, in queer spaces and, you want to express nudity. The question is, you know, will I show my face in that kind of scenario? But as a as a clergy and someone that work in public uh, spaces, public um, the areas like the university, I think probably the last thing you want to see is a fully naked chaplain or fully naked priest. 
And it's because of the industry that I work in. So I have to choose carefully. But going back to 1996, at the Christmas party, Black people went to the clubs, when we went to the bars, you know, we're always trying to hide away from people. And I, and a good example are the clubs, the nightclubs, because this was the days before Uber, taxis and things like that. So when you come out of the club, there are like 100 Nigerian taxi drivers touting for, for fares. And of course, you don't want them to see you because the black community is still a small community. And, you know, if Uncle Jerome, a taxi driver, sees you outside of the gay club, you know that the entire family in the community is going to find out, you know, within minutes. Um, and I think that was part of the fear. How did you manage that risk? Like, how did you leave clubs and bars? You have to have a hoodie on oh. and run. Oh. <laughs> Seriously. Many of us had hoodies. We would hold handkerchiefs around our faces, you know, and we don't go to those taxi drivers. <laughs> was it quite common for you to encounter people in bars who uh, had, like, wives or were in relationships and just didn't want to tell their partner? Absolutely. It, it's commonplace. You will walk into people you know, either someone from your school days or somebody from your work, work environment, even someone from church, like, oh, goodness me, um, Brother Jerome, you know. The, the, the black community, the black gay community is very huge uh, on the nightlife, definitely. But when it comes to uh, uh, peer support and interventions like bigger, they're very small in numbers. And that is why uh, the bigger community, in my opinion, is still one of the strongest peer support communities. I heard that some people in sort of the LGBT scene back in the day used to use um, code names. They didn't actually use their given name. So you only really knew people from their first name terms. Is that the case? I mean, you must you must have known people who became, I guess, quote unquote, the regulars, people who were always there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were so many coded names. I had coded names as well. <laughs> so it's like... Oh, what was your coded name? <laughs> My coded name was James Island. <laughs> James Island. Oh, I kind of like it. It's got like a little bit of flair to it. It does sound a little bit like a pirate, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had coded name. Um, my parents and my family called me Roland. And I think people know that I'm Roland these days. But when I came out as gay, I dropped Roland and I started to use Jide. Jide is also one of my names. In fact, it's one to my third name. But then again, um, I was facing a lot of challenge with Roland because Roland was the heterosexual guy or the guy who was pretending to be uh, to be straight. So I did not want any association with Roland. So when I met my queer friends, I told them my name is Jide. But of course, you know, when you go out on the gay scene and and even when I went to the clinic for um, my STI test back in the days, you know, I gave the name James Island, for example. Um, and, and I think that it got to a point after my diagnosis, I think it took another three, four years before I was able to change the record in the clinic um, to my real name because I was so afraid that all of this information is going to be passed on to my, 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 my GP and Again, we've had so many damning stories about you'll never be able to get a mortgage, you'll not be able to get insurance, and if they found out that you even had an STI, let alone HIV. 
Really? Yes, yes. And so, so you, I won't go to the clinic with, with, with a pseudonym. And wow. um, yeah, and that, that record stayed for a while. Um, but, but things have really changed. Legislation has protected people with HIV these days, so you cannot be discriminated against. But unfortunately, um, insurance is very high and very difficult. There's a little high level of scrutiny. And unfortunately, the premiums are still very high uh, for people living with HIV to get things like life insurance. Um, you know, so again, it's just ridiculous. I mean, the process is 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 not good at all. Yeah, I mean, I think as a trans guy, I also have like an interesting association with names. Mm. Um, some of my, I mean, <laughs> I originally picked Rico Jacob Chase because it was different to my legal name, so I could hide. So to see people in that photo who are so uh, liber liberated and free and happy and smiling and having the courage <laughs> to, be, to have a photo taken. Absolutely. Oh, because when I first came out, people were like, oh, I was going to take a photo of, like, with, like, the flag at the back. I'm like, I can't quite put that on my social media yet because, you know, I've got my cousins on there. I'm like, oh. Even now, you still have the risk. Uh, so you have to check people, do you want to be photographed before you take a photo? Because not everyone has the privilege of being so out of our identity. And it's true, it is a privilege. I, th um, I think you're very right. I mean, when I first came out, I was going through a very difficult time with Roland. So when people called me in the street, Roland, I don't answer. I don't turn back. I just keep going. If you don't know me as Jide, you don't know me. Sorry. Yeah. You know, that kind of feeling. So it was really, I, I, I carried a lot of pain when I first came out. I mean, as a trans guy, I definitely do have like, I do relate to the fact that if you don't know me as Rico, you don't know me. Um, but it's been an absolute honor speaking to you. I actually think I have you on Instagram. I think I follow you on social media. <laughs> I think I, I literally like all your photos, but I never actually had a conversation with you. Okay, we, we, need, we need to address that. Hey Rico, how you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's really good to see you here today. Um, so you went out and you met my dear friend and fellow activist and longtime troublemaker, uh, Reverend Jide. How was that? Uh, troublemaker, there's a backstory there. Please tell me later. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was brilliant, actually. Uh, it was very, very empowering for me because I think we do tend to get understandably bogged down about what's happening in the current political climate. So it's nice to see, or nice to hear stories of empowerment from the past to, in a way, recognise there has been some progress, but more importantly, to recognise that there have been members or people in my um in my demographic, in the black community who have existed and have been fighting because our stories aren't really told and it's very, very hard needed to even find those stories. So to be face to face with someone who's kind of fought through so much was really, really beautiful to hear, actually. I mean, I've worked with Jide for, gosh, 25, nearly 30 years and we both worked a big up together. Mm -hmm. I think you talked about that when you met. What did he tell you about how he engaged with Big Up and what support he got there. He mentioned that it was a really supportive environment and how it was a pivotal part in his life, uh, going along to those support um, groups and to have the community there. 
and he mentioned that everyone in the room had different names in the black community, the black queer community, and some of them had wives and had different lives and had to lie about who they were and their family through fear. So he did mention that it was iconic to have a Christmas party and for it to actually be a Christmas event and then that everyone in that room was beaming. So we were talking about how incredibly happy people were there, um, how free and liberated that they they felt. So he did touch on it, but from what I know about Big Up, I think there's more to the story. <laughs> a lot more. So so, so, so Jude gave you a narrative which was about some men, particularly at that time, because of homophobia, because of wanting to be to stay hidden mm-hmm. because to protect themselves, they would choose different names. And I remember some guys doing that. You know, I was very open, so everybody knew Mark. But I remember Jude giving a, a different name. Tell me a little bit about your experience of that. Um, I think for the trans community, I'm, I guess historically we're saying um, because of homophobia, you pick a different name to hide. Mm. For trans people, it's the other way around. Like our name is visibility. It's existing. It's, it's empowering. Um, and I remember Jude saying how liberating it was to be in a space where people actually saw you and you get to pick your name and that is who you are and that level of acceptance something that I resonated with in that particular discussion because when people use my name we do describe it as quote-unquote chosen name but that's my name Mm. my old Mm. name is my dead name like (laughs) I no longer use that (laughs) it gets to the point where I get if I get Mel from my old name I get confused I'm like who's this I'm like oh yeah that's who I used to be Uh, I don't really have much association with that name Um, I am who I am and um, you don't realise how powerful your name and your identity is until someone tries to take it from you so sort of having that um, and embracing it is really important that's a really interesting one isn't it I've never thought of that before I mean and in some ways for say say cis men at that time who were giving fake names to protect themselves that when they were able to come out with their real name and their real identity like Jide did and now everybody knows Jide McCauley is an incredibly powerful thing and I love what you're saying that connection between owning who we are and claiming who we are, which I think is fantastic. And it's great to see that journey happening. So tell me a little bit more about your work with Transactual in the LGBT consortium and how does that help you to support uh, black queer people? I mean, Transactual was founded about five years ago and originally it was just a website for um, trans people to have resources, say, for example, uh, blogs. But now it's expanded. The last two years expanded significantly. And I came on board about two years ago and I was um, the first POC director at the time. And they, they purposely hired me because they're like, we need to address the intersectionality element of being um, part of the LGBT community. The intersectionality piece is important because when we were doing a, a survey, mm-hmm. um, a survey of trans non-binary people uh, two years ago, we made sure that the intersectionality element was included in the survey. So you have statistics available in order to make the point that intersectionality does actually exist, um, that there is a disproportionate difference when it comes to income. Also, um, that would impact transitioning. Uh, when it comes to access to uh, resources, you get the, the biases of medical providers, there is a difference when it comes to our, our experiences. And ho- over half of the users of Gallup, a support line for individuals who are experiencing domestic abuse, are POC people. And over the half of the people in LGBT homeless shelters are POC people. 
So intersectionality does make an impact. And it's not necessarily because there's embedded homophobia in black communities. It's because of colonialism. Mm -hmm. Let's not start um, pointing fingers and blaming any communities, but it's important to kind of recognise that. When it comes to LGBT consortium, they distributed um, just shy of a million in funding to LGBT charities across the UK. And that funds some of the big charities such as Stonewall, Mermaids, but we also tried to fund some of the smaller charities as well. So we made the grant funds anything from like 25K all the way down to 100 pounds. So if you do need the fund to do something just small, which is still gonna make an impact, then you can access the funding. So that's kind of the work that I got into. For me personally, I got into it because I was angry. <laughs> I was so livid. <laughs> I think I realised that I was black and trans and then like from day one I was like, this is this isn't it. Things need to change. I mean, anger is a great motivator. Mm. You know, particularly when we see stuff missing. Plus you're a Jamaican like me, so <laughs> that kind of goes with the territory, it's right? Blood. <laughs> <laughs> Come from fam. Um but something else I want to ask you about was, I mean, you've talked about intersectionality. So, you know, you have your, you know, your intersectionality that you've talked about for yourself. And if we think about Jide and Jide is kind of working on multiple fronts, you know, around sexuality and identity, but also about religion. And what do you think about the way he has found a way to support black queer people through religion? Did that resonate with you in any way? Did you see any connection between your work with trans communities and, and Jide's with religion and faith? bringing together all the different components that make you human and being comfortable with all of them. Uh, I think we found common ground. There were some moments where it got a bit dark when he was talking about his history um, and I felt probably a bit triggered <laughs> by that, um, but triggered in the sense that it resonated and I'd been there and I'd been in those places. I have had Jide on Instagram for about, I don't know, about two years. <laughs> we both follow each other, but we've never had that conversation. So I respected him before I even met him, but having actually understood the story in depth and the brilliant work that he's doing, it made me understand him more and probably see the value of actually speaking to people within the community. Your work at LGBT Consortium and Transactual, Jide's work at House of Rainbow, the work that we did at Big Up is very much about structured support, kind of formal, even if it feels informal. Mm -hmm. From your chat with Jide, mm -hmm. what are you going to take forward in your work? What might you do differently or enhance, which has been inspired by talking to Jide? I would say for me, speaking to people who've climbed hills that, you are, that were thought unclimbable. Expression? I think you know what I mean. Like looking at gay rights back in the 80s, it would have seemed impossible. It would have seemed bordering on impossible. And I do feel as if when it comes to trans rights with the current government, there are moments where I think, good God. <laughs> so taking from that discussion, I did get some empowerment. I did get, keep going. Brown skin beauty Fair fine future I've been your host, Mark Thompson. The reporter in this episode was Rico Jacob Chase. You can find the picture we've discussed in today's episode and all the images talked about throughout this podcast on Instagram at Black and Gay Back in the Day. And drop us a message if you have something you want to submit to the archive. A link will be available in the show notes. Coming up next week on Black and Gay Back in the Day... Oh my gosh, happiness, joy.
styling out. I'm looking at a photo of David McCormick on his way to London Pride in 1992. Black Pride wasn't even a thing then. Black and Gay Back in the Day is an Aunt Nell production based on the archive created by myself and Jason Okendeo. It is produced by Shivani Dave and Tash Walker, and the assistant producer is Abby McIntosh. Mixing was by Adam Smith, and the music was composed and performed by Amaru. Artwork was by Kemi Oliede. The executive producers were myself and the Art Nell team. Thanks to Content is Queen, The Glass House, The Audio Content Fund, Gadio, The Bishopsgate Institute and all of our contributors. A special thank you to all of those past and present who have fought for black queer liberation. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.